When I was in high school and the Denver Broncos were a decent team, I used to watch them, and it seemed to me that every time they kicked a field goal, someone behind the goalpost would hold up a large sign with John chapter 3 and verse 3 on it, or John chapter 3 and verse 16. I assume that's probably still the case in many, many games, I don't know. When I encountered people preaching on a street corner back in Denver and holding up placards, John 3 was frequently cited. When we share the gospel, I dare say that our minds run instinctively to John chapter 3. It's kind of the go-to passage to succinctly explain the gospel, particularly John chapter 3 and verse 16. Nevertheless, despite the chapter's fame, isn't it interesting how infrequently we actually use the language of John 3 to describe our own salvation experience? When is the last time you told someone that you have been born again? Our tendency is to refer to getting saved. Being born again holds some mystery even for believers. All that to say, let's not let our apparent familiarity with this text, all right, keep us from really investigating it. There may be more here than we realize. Let's not approach John chapter 3 with overconfidence that we've already mastered it. John 3 records a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus while Jesus was down in Jerusalem for Passover. Unlike the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John observes Jesus' interactions with individuals. The synoptics often move along at a very brisk pace, and they focus on Jesus' public preaching and his healing ministry. But John slows down, and he lets us eavesdrop on conversations that Jesus had with diverse people. In John 3, Jesus converses with Nicodemus. In John 4, Jesus converses with a Samaritan woman. In John 4, also, Jesus converses with a Gentile official. In John 5, Jesus converses with a lame man at the Pool of Bethesda. You see the pattern. And these conversations reveal how adept Jesus was at counseling individuals from a great variety of different backgrounds. Just for a moment, contrast John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Nicodemus in chapter 3 was a Jew, the woman of chapter 4 a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The woman was a societal outcast. Nicodemus was a male, she obviously a female. Nicodemus was highly educated in Jewish religion. The woman was steeped in Samaritan superstition. Nicodemus was a respected man of high moral caliber. The woman was guilty of marital infidelity. And Jesus very skillfully interacts with both. So let's begin our exploration of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and let's read the first ten verses. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs, plural, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Well, what was the nature of this conversation? What was the tone of their voices? Was there a hint of sarcasm or incredulity in Nicodemus's voice? Does Nicodemus's voice communicate sincerity? What did his body language communicate? Hostility? Agitation? Curiosity? It would indeed be very interesting to transport ourselves backwards in time and to just listen in on this conversation, this interaction. On the one hand, Nicodemus' opening remark in verse 2 seems polite and respectful. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But does that politeness hide a more sinister agenda? Jesus' response just really cuts right through Nicodemus' platitudes and abruptly confronts him with his need for spiritual rebirth. In fact, Jesus' question in verse 10 is almost combative. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I suggest this confrontation is probably a bit more adversarial than we might think. At this point, Jesus is still a nobody in the eyes of the Jewish leadership. Jesus did not follow the traditional rabbinic path of being apprenticed to an older teacher for many years. Jesus was self-taught, and he lacked the formal rabbinical credentials that the other rabbis enjoyed. In fact, later on in John chapter 7, the Jerusalem leaders, these are Nicodemus' colleagues, will accuse Jesus of being uneducated. However, it is true that Nicodemus recognizes the power of Jesus' signs. And thus far, we've only encountered one sign in John's gospel. That was the turning of water into wine. But in John 20, John tells us that Jesus actually performed numerous signs. These signs were never recorded, but he did in fact record many, many, I did in fact perform many, many other signs. 
And if you just glance back at chapter 2 and verse 23, you'll also find a reference to these other signs that Jesus performed. So Nicodemus recognizes the power of Jesus' signs, that's true, but I suspect that he has genuine reservations about Jesus. And I want to show you three clues in the text, three clues that tell us that Nicodemus really has reservations. First, would you notice how our passage is situated in the text? Just ignore the chapter division. It wasn't there in the original. And observe how chapter 2 ends. Look at verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And why not? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that's the context for Nicodemus's conversation. People are believing in Jesus' signs, but Jesus knows better than to entrust himself to these people. When you ignore the chapter break and just read right into chapter 3, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus becomes an extended illustration of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Nicodemus recognizes Jesus' signs, that is true, but in the words of verse 24, Jesus does not entrust himself to Nicodemus because he knew all people. That's your first clue. Second, notice how quickly Jesus shifts Nicodemus' attention away from messianic signs to Nicodemus' need for spiritual rebirth. The transition between chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 is quite abrupt. Let's read it again. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus flatters Jesus, drawing attention to his signs. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Let's not talk about signs. Verse 3, Jesus answered abruptly, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The signs that Jesus performed would eventually run him afoul of the Jewish religious leadership. They will finally attribute these signs to none other than Beelzebub, and they will seek to have Jesus executed. So Jesus knows better than to entrust himself to Nicodemus at this point, and he goes immediately to Nicodemus's true need. You must be born again. I had a conversation some time back with an individual who I would characterize as very interested in Christianity. But his interest was largely apologetic. What I mean is he loved public debates on creation and evolution. He was fascinated by the powerful historical and scientific evidence for creation for design in nature, for flood geology, for the resurrection. He could argue for the supernatural. 
Unlike Jesus, I could not look into that man's heart, but it seemed to me that he was a Nicodemus. He was enthralled with the power of Christianity, but he had never been born again. See the difference? He likes the power, but has he truly been born again? Jesus, I suspect, would abruptly turn the conversation to that man's heart. Let's look inside your heart and see what's there. A third clue that Nicodemus had reservations about Jesus is found in Nicodemus' use of the word we, plural, in verse 2. We, notice that we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus at this point is aligning himself with his fellow rabbis. He presents himself as a kind of emissary from the group. But he's not yet one of Jesus' followers. He's not in Jesus' group yet. He has no individual commitment to Jesus at this point. So those three clues, I suggest, help us interpret the tone of this passage. And again, I think it's a bit more adversarial than we sometimes think. Now, various suggestions have been made about the fact that Jesus came, Nicodemus rather, came to Jesus by night. And I, for one, don't know that we should read too much into that detail. Some have suggested that Nicodemus was using the cloak of darkness to conceal his true interest in Jesus. He was trying to hide from the other members of the Sanhedrin. But to me, this seems unlikely given the adversarial nature of this conversation and also his use of the word we in verse 2. Others have pointed out the long-established Jewish tradition, the rabbinic tradition of debating theological passages well into the night after the business of the day is done. This is very common among Jewish rabbis. And this seems to be a bit more likely. Nicodemus does use the term rabbi in verse 2. Whether he actually viewed Jesus as a legitimate rabbi is doubtful. But the term suggests that Nicodemus is willing at least to engage Jesus in a rabbinic debate. Again, it was very common for them to discuss matters well into the night. It could also be that John references the night, as he does elsewhere, to indicate a context of spiritual darkness. This, of course, does not undermine the historical reality that Nicodemus did indeed come by night. But it points to the fact that Nicodemus, like so many Jewish rulers, were ensnared by spiritual darkness, by blindness to the light that walked among them. So again, all this gives you some context, I think, for interpreting John chapter 3. The passage, it seems to me, is a kind of power struggle between Jesus and a ruler of the Jews. Early in the dialogue, Jesus comes right to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus just ignores Nicodemus' polite opening, and he goes right to the heart of the matter. And Jesus skillfully, in verse 3, sets the agenda For the remainder of the conversation. And Jesus, in verse 3, introduces two terms of vast theological importance. Number one, born again. And number two, kingdom of God. 
And do we understand these terms? What does it mean to be born again into the kingdom of God? Well, I want to spend most of our time this morning with that first term. What does it mean to be born again? Well, the most obvious answer that comes to anyone's mind is exactly the answer that Nicodemus assumes in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Friends, if we approach a complete stranger with no knowledge of the Bible, and you said you must be born again, he would doubtless assume you were referring to starting life all over again. Just going all the way back to your mother's womb and beginning again. That is the most obvious meaning of to be born again. And that's why Nicodemus responded the way that he did. But that's not what Jesus meant. And can we just pause momentarily and really apply this? Let's acknowledge that the most obvious answer was actually the wrong answer. Jesus sometimes used terminology and parables that were deliberately confusing the people. Joseph picked up on this last Wednesday night. Often Jesus explained truth in such a way that people just didn't get it right away. And you've got to be very comfortable with that when you read through the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explained that his parables confirmed people in their disbelief. Seeing, he said, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And we saw an example of this last week. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And no one understood what he meant until he resurrected. Well, it is true that we can give spiritual truth to people and they do not understand, at least not immediately. And friends, that is okay. If you just look at the ministry of Jesus, he's in no real hurry. Jesus waits for the Spirit's illumination, and so must we. We do not manipulate people into converting instantly when the Holy Spirit is taking his time with people. So use spiritual truth, all right? But don't manipulate people. If they don't understand, it's okay. Let the Spirit work. Now, Nicodemus' confusion leads to a clarification on the part of Jesus, a clarification that Nicodemus still doesn't understand. It's right there in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now notice this crucial connection, born again in verse 3, all right, can you explain that? Well, born again in verse 3 is equivalent to born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. Jesus says you must be born again. Okay, that doesn't mean going for a second time into your mother's womb. Well, what does that mean? It means to be born of water and the Spirit. So what then does born of water and the Spirit mean? 
Whatever born again means, it's born of water and the Spirit. So if you want to know what born again means, you have to ask the question, what does born of water and the Spirit mean? You follow that? And it might surprise you to learn that good theologians and commentators are not entirely agreed. Let me give you two possibilities. Number one, born of water and the Spirit could refer to our physical birth and our spiritual rebirth. The and distinguishes between two different birth experiences, born of water, number one, and the Spirit, number two. Born of water, then, would refer to our physical bodies being submerged in water in our mother's wombs. When a pregnant woman's water breaks, she goes to the hospital and she gives birth. Born of water is to be born covered in amniotic fluid. It's the physical birth. Born of water refers to the physical bodily birth that every last one of us experienced after being carried for 40 weeks in our mother's wombs. So if born of water refers to our physical birth, then born of spirit must refer to our spiritual rebirth when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Born of spirit, then, refers to spiritual regeneration. Now, this interpretation is certainly possible, and it seems to explain verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And I have actually taught this interpretation. However, I do have a couple hesitations about this interpretation. First, our ancient sources do not, so far as we know, refer to natural birth as born in water. This was not how the ancients referred to the birth of children, the physical birth. So it seems a little bit unlikely that Jesus would use new terminology concerning our first birth, maybe confusing terminology, new terminology to introduce a conversation about this new idea of new birth. And secondly, I'm a little bit cautious about this interpretation lest it lead to Gnostic conceptions of salvation. According to the Gnostic scheme, God redeems only our spirits and not our bodies. And this is completely contrary to the biblical doctrine of bodily resurrection. We don't believe, I hope you don't believe, that the first birth is all physical and the second birth is all spiritual. Actually, not what the Bible teaches. Salvation is not a matter of our disembodied spirits just floating off to heaven forever after we die. Salvation involves us inheriting new physical bodies to live in the new creation with the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Jesus, friends, did not come merely to redeem your soul. He came to redeem the whole of your humanity, including your body, that same body that was submerged in water in your mother's womb. Jesus resurrected the same body that Mary bore. He had the scars in his hands to prove it. I'm a little bit cautious that we don't think of a physical birth and a spiritual birth as two very different things. Because when we're born again, all right, we get our bodies back. 
What then is another possible interpretation of born of water and the Spirit? Well, probably the key to understanding the phrase is implied in verse 10. Here Jesus rebukes Nicodemus' ignorance. Jesus said, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, Jesus is very blunt. Nicodemus, you're a teacher. Well, you should understand what I mean, right? You're a teacher. You should understand this. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. So what exactly did Nicodemus fail to understand as a teacher of Israel? Or to put it another way, what did Nicodemus fail to understand even while he was teaching it? Apparently, Nicodemus did not understand what he was teaching. So what was he teaching? And what's the answer? The Old Testament. Nicodemus was a teacher of what we now call the Old Testament. Of course, in that day, it wasn't called the Old Testament. He was a teacher of the prophets. He was a teacher of Moses. And Jesus is asking Nicodemus, look, if you're a teacher of the Scriptures, well, how can you not understand what it means to be born again of water and the Spirit? Well, obviously then, if we want to know what it means to be born of water and the Spirit, we should be able to go back to the Old Testament and figure this out, right? You follow that? You're a teacher of Israel. You should get this. What did you teach the Old Testament? Let's go back to the Old Testament then. All right, and let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And let's see whether we cannot just figure this out. The fact is, we do not find the exact phrase, born of water and the Spirit, in the Old Testament. That is true. However, the Old Testament writers pointed forward to a day when God's Spirit will be poured out like water on humankind, resulting in blessing and cleansing and righteousness. Water is used figuratively in the Old Testament for God just cleansing away, washing away your sins. Listen to how commentator D.A. Carson puts it. When water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to renewal or cleansing, especially when it is found in conjunction with spirit. Now, the Old Testament, again, does not refer to physical birth in water and a later new birth in the Spirit. Born of water and the Spirit probably does not refer, then, to two separate births. Rather, taken together, water and Spirit refer to the washing away of our sin and spiritual regeneration. The two come together. Now, this does not suggest baptismal regeneration is part of salvation. Don't anyone get confused by that. But the Spirit, like water, is just poured out on our wounds, on our wickedness, and He just washes it all away. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36, I think, sheds some light on this truth, as it should have on Nicodemus. Ezekiel predicts a time of national revival when God is going to come along and God is just going to cleanse away the idolatry and the abuse and the wickedness of his people. He will restore them to a proper relationship with himself. And notice the language of Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27 
where the cleansing of water and the Spirit converge. All right, pay very careful attention to this. The water and the Spirit come together. Not two separate births, but they come together. Let's read verse 25. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. All right, so there's the water. I'm going to cleanse you with water. And I will give you a new heart. And look at this. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will, look at this, put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Let's notice a couple things about this passage. First of all, again, water and spirit come together to refer to spiritual regeneration. They don't refer to two separate births in this case. God sprinkles clean water on his people and washes the way they are, their idolatry, washes the way their uncleanness, but that's not all. When he does that, God puts his spirit, his spirit right into the heart of the cleansed sinner. And he is born again of water and the Spirit. Washing away the sins, new life of the Spirit, they come together. Second, the passage, let's just note this, does not speak of a works-based salvation. Rather, it refers to Israel's God just radically changing hearts and cleansing people of their wickedness. Look at verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God's doing. Or later in the verse, I will cleanse you of idolatry. God is the one taking the initiative. In verse 26, God gives his people a whole new heart. This is again, no works. This is God doing this. He takes away the heart of stone and he gives them a living, beating heart of flesh. It's alive. And this is precisely what Jeremiah chapter 31 predicted with the new covenant. God is just going to totally change their hearts. That's the new birth. And thirdly, would you just note that this passage does not emphasize spiritual immaterial salvation is over against physical salvation. There's nothing Gnostic about the passage. And you'll see this if you just keep on reading. And notice how God's spiritual regeneration involves the creation all around us. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And notice especially verse 35. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. We are talking here about God's redemption of His creation. A return to Eden. A restoration of creation. And friends, guess what? That includes your physical bodies. When you're born again, that includes your physical body. How do we know this? Well, turn forward one chapter to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. 
<clears throat> and what you notice, if you have it there in your Bible, the chapter heading. Here is the famous Old Testament passage concerning the valley of dry bones being resurrected to new life by God's Spirit. And look at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit. There's the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And He led me around among them. Imagine that. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man... Can these bones live? When you see bones, you know something's died. Can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And look at this, I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you, flesh to come upon you bones and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, friends, does that sound like being born again? Dry bones suddenly revivified by the Spirit of God called back to life again, bones with skin and sinews and breath once again. Clearly, the new birth is not merely a spiritual birth, even though it is that. It's also a physical rebirth. God just stretches skin right across your bones and breathes life into you again. He breathes life into your nostrils, the same breath of life that he breathed back into Adam. All this happens when God just sprinkles clean water on your putrefied humanity. God puts His Spirit within us, and He summons us to life. And look at verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When? When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And notice what He does. And I will put my Spirit within you and you shall live. Now let's bring all this back to John chapter 3 now. Nicodemus, in fact, you can turn back there now. Nicodemus wants to know, well, what does it mean to be born again? Can I just go a second time into my mother's womb and start the whole cycle all over again? No, Nicodemus, no, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, have you never read Ezekiel? God is going to cleanse away all our impurities like water poured on ghastly wounds. God is going to change our hearts to worship Him. God is going to change our cold, stony hearts of indifference and make us alive again. And ultimately, here's what God is going to do. He is going to breathe across our bones and he's going to stretch skin over them and sinews, and he's going to call us right up out of the grave. That's what it means to be born again. Now, all of this admittedly is still a little bit mysterious in John chapter 3. And the fact is, in John 3, Jesus does not answer all the questions that we might have. And that's okay, because Jesus knows that later on, 
a man named Paul is going to explain this in a lot more detail in the book of Romans. Paul is going to come along and introduce terms like justification and sanctification and glorification, all of which play into the new birth. Paul explains the space, if you will, between events and our new birth. I'm born again when I put my faith in Jesus. That's justification. I'm gradually transformed and cleansed by the spirit of sanctification. I'm eventually going to be glorified. And when I'm glorified, guess what? I get my body back. I'm resurrected from the valley of dry bones. All that's going to get explained later on. But for now, we have the single term, born again, or born again of water and the Spirit, and that encompasses the totality of our salvation experience, even if it leaves us with a little bit of mystery. And the fact is, Jesus himself acknowledges the mystery in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, we cannot control the wind or even fully understand it. And the fact is, it works that way with the Spirit and His work in the heart of a sinner. We cannot control the timing of one's salvation or when God sends out a spirit of revival. I have no control over that. Why is it that some people come so easily into the kingdom and others take a very long time? Why do some people get a Damascus Road experience? It's just like momentary, right? And others, it takes a long time, like Peter. The Samaritan woman in chapter 4 just seems to embrace Jesus almost instantly. And Nicodemus, the scholar, it's going to take longer. Friends, there really is mystery in how this all works. There's mystery in salvation. But the point is that salvation is the work of the Spirit. I cannot control it, but Ezekiel made it clear that God takes the initiative and God regenerates stony hearts. So to summarize, then, what does it mean to be born again? To be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. That could refer to physical birth and later your spiritual rebirth, but I think more plausibly it refers to the total transformation of believers, the total transformation they experience through the gospel. God washes away their sins with floods of grace. And God resurrects their bodies to new life in the new world. This is precisely what the Old Testament taught. God is going to come along. He's just going to take away our sins. And God is going to resurrect us to new life. That's what it means to be born again. Now briefly, and I do mean briefly, let's look at our second term in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The term kingdom of God also turns up in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I will not at this point develop a whole theology of the kingdom of God. This really is an enormous subject in the Gospels. Suffice it to say that the Jews had many misconceptions. They expected that their Messiah would come and immediately set up an earthly kingdom. But Jesus had other intentions. Jesus desired to bring all nations, east and west, not merely the Jews, under his benevolent rule. Entering the kingdom of God is equivalent to embracing Jesus as our Savior, whether Jews or Gentiles. 
And incidentally, John's gospel mentions the kingdom, can you believe this, on only two occasions. We saw it all the time in Matthew. John mentions it only twice, here in chapter 3 and again in chapter 18. In chapter 18, on trial, Jesus proclaims, my kingdom is not of this world. And here in chapter 3, Jesus is clearly speaking about spiritual rebirth into the kingdom beyond this temporary world that we inhabit right now. It's also instructed to note that John 3 relates Jesus' first teaching on the kingdom recorded in all four Gospels. If you harmonize, harmonize the Gospel accounts, this is the first mention of the kingdom. And I really wish I had time to develop this, but I don't. But there was an old dispensational teaching, now widely rejected, that Jesus initially offered the Jews an immediate political kingdom. Here it is if you want it. When the Jews rejected it, Jesus postponed the kingdom until some future date. It's sometimes called the postponement of the kingdom, and I will not critique that now, but suffice it to say this, first references are very important. And what we just read in John chapter 3 is the first reference to Jesus saying anything about his kingdom. And if you want to be in that kingdom, you must be born again. He's not talking about launching an invasion against Rome. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being born again into the family of God. Now, friend, you may be sitting out there today and you have never been born again. You've never experienced anything that I'm talking about this morning. It may be that you look inside your own heart and it's stone. Your sins have never been washed away. And at this point, friend, you just have no hope of seeing your body, your, your body resurrected. And friend, if that describes you, would you look down at chapter 3 and verse 16? There's a reason this is one of the most widely cited verses in all the Bible, one of the most famous verses in all the world. God's solution for you is very simple. For God so loved the world, and just put your name in right there. Just go ahead and put your name in. In fact, all of you believers out there, go ahead and put your name in right there. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You want to know how to be born again? There it is, right there. All right, put your faith in his only son. Again, there's a reason this verse is held up at football games. There's a reason this is a go-to verse for so many people. And it's very simply this. People have come to experience this. People have come to experience the love of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. You put your faith in Him, and you will be born again.